Welcome to the History of Chemistry podcast. I'm Steve Cohen, your host, and this is episode 79, Suit Yourself, discussing how American law and changing social standards affected chemistry. Thanks to those who already support this podcast. Support the continuation of this podcast at Patreon. The website is www.patreon.com forward slash the history of chemistry. A recent article in the American Chemical Society's weekly news magazine, Chemical and Engineering News, discussed how a lawsuit changed the environment for women in the academic world in the 1970s. So, in this episode, rather than looking at how chemistry changed society, we shift gears and look at how society changed chemistry. We go back to 1960, and a new graduate from an Indian university with a Bachelor of Science degree in chemistry from the University of Madras, Shyamala Rajender. America, as usual, was the land of opportunity, and Ms. Rajender was interested in advanced studies in chemistry to become a professor. But that was difficult in India at the time. The term Ms. didn't even exist at that time. She applied to the University of Wyoming and was accepted into their graduate program. She worked on her graduate studies and, in sequence, received a master's degree and then doctorate, both in biochemistry. In a short time after finishing, she was hired as a faculty member of the department, and there even were a few other women faculty members in the department, not at all common back then. But it's generally considered in the scientific world a good idea to go to other departments and learn of new ideas and meet new people, and Dr. Rajender decided to do this. First, she worked as a postdoctoral researcher at the University of Minnesota, beginning in 1970, bringing her family with her. For those of you who don't know, being a postdoc is like a transition between graduate student and professor. There are no classes to attend, but you might teach a class or be a teaching assistant. You work for a professor, like a graduate student, doing research. If the research goes well, you have a hand in writing and publishing papers. And this is what Dr. Regender did for three years till 1973. I also did two stints as a postdoctoral researcher. The first was technically with Lehigh University, but I was a contractor doing chemical research for the United States Navy. The second was doing laser spectroscopy at Rutgers University. I published papers through the Navy and in technical journals with the first postdoc. I was a teaching assistant and published papers in the second. Everything was going well during Regender's postdoc. She published papers with Professor Rufus Lumry on physical chemistry of proteins. There were no women faculty members in the 46-person department and hadn't been for at least four decades, if not twice that but that didn't seem to be a problem. 
During the social upheavals, or as Robert Heinlein, science fiction writer, predicted would happen years before and named them the crazy years of the 1960s, the United States Civil Rights Act of 1964 came into force, prohibiting any discrimination on account of race, color, national origin, sex, or religion. Also, the act prevents employers from retaliating against employees suing for redress. In that Civil Rights Act, the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, or EEOC, was set up, but didn't have the power to litigate. But then, in 1972, during Dr. Rajender's postdoc, the United States Congress passed into law the Equal Employment Opportunity Act. President Nixon, who a few years before brought the Environmental Protection Agency into action, signed the EEOC into law on March 24, 1972. This act gave the existing Equal Employment Opportunity Commission the ability to sue parties for discrimination. It also eliminated the exemption that certain bodies had from lawsuits nonprofit organizations, governments, and higher education. Apparently, at the time, the change in the law was not well known, and the media didn't report much on it. Another important legal change in the United States occurred only three months later, when the Education Amendments of 1972 were signed into law. On June 23rd. These amendments, including its more famous section called Title IX, disallowed discrimination based on sex within any educational institutions which received money from the federal government. The practical effect of the education amendments allowed the United States government to look into quotas for admission to universities, special financial packages for student athletes, And amounts of stipends for researchers and teachers. One famous case of quotas and discrimination was in the founding of Rice University in Houston for only, quote, the white inhabitants of the city of Houston and state of Texas, unquote, as per its charter from 1891, and began operation in 1912. A 1963 lawsuit, which the university supported, Aimed to break this charter, and the institution desegregated in 1964. Another quota was the admission of Jewish students at a maximum of 15% per class to Ivy League universities in the early to mid 20th century. Likewise, Jews in the Russian Empire were heavily restricted from attending higher education. Toward the end of Regender's postdoctoral stint, The acting chair of the department, Walter Northland, told her there would be a tenure track job on the faculty when her position was up. Then, when her position actually ended, she asked the new permanent chair, Bob Chester, about the promised faculty position. Things got icky fast. The new chair reversed course and told her she could not have the job because she was a woman. Bringing a woman into the department would create conflict with the existing male faculty. He even sent letters to other chemistry departments and industry requesting that they, quote, recommend suitable men for faculty positions in his department, 
Unquote. This seemed wrong to Rajender. She talked about this incident with other women grad students and faculty from other departments. Finally, she went to the university administration and reported the incident. According to Rajender, the administration had heard such rumors of discrimination from the chemistry department, but this was the first time anyone had ever formally reported a problem. The president of the university then set up a committee to investigate this alleged event. The university committee spent some months investigating and eventually agreed with Rajender. The chemistry department had discriminated against women in general and her in particular. Among the findings was that the department never interviewed any women for faculty positions. The committee also asked that Rajender be hired into a permanent faculty position in the department. Then the president of the University of Minnesota talked to the chemistry department. He decided not to overrule the department and leave things as they were. The committee set up to investigate the discrimination all resigned to protest the president's decision. At that point, Rajender learned that some of the professors and administrators were telling falsehoods about her behind her back and she decided to fight back against the smear campaign. She officially filed a complaint outside the university to the state of Minnesota. The state agreed that there was likely discrimination, but did nothing. Rajender then escalated things to another level. She filed a complaint with the newly empowered Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. The EEOC already had quite a list of complaints it was investigating, which tells you the problems in the United States at that time, and told her maybe she should file a lawsuit. And so she did. She sued the University for Discrimination in a federal court in Minnesota in 1973, and then decided to reclassify the lawsuit as a class action. In this way, should she win, the laws required the university to compensate her for her lawyers she hired. For those of you outside the USA, you may have heard about the reputation the United States has for being a litigious society, with vast amounts of money awarded to plaintiffs if the trial goes their way. Bear in mind that the fear of vast sums of money out of a party's bank account can help steer wrongdoers back into the right direction. As they say, money talks. There was a lead time of several years from filing Dr. Regender's lawsuit to the start of the trial. After the lawsuit went to trial, the court called in many faculty members and administrators from the university who started to attack her character in court. The article in Chemical and Engineering News quotes Regender as saying, quote, Before, I was a good teacher. I was a good researcher. But after I filed the complaint, they had to come and testify, and they said I was the world's worst teacher, the world's worst researcher, unquote. But Regender had an answer for all of these allegations. She kept all the paperwork and notes. One example in court was when a faculty member claimed 150 students walked out of a lecture she was giving. But she had notes showing that was a lie. She could show exactly how many students were not present during that class day. 
In fact, upon questioning in court, the faculty member wasn't even in the United States, but on sabbatical in Germany when the false claim occurred. Many women on campus supported Regender's lawsuit, but few testified in court on her behalf, maybe because of worry of retribution to their jobs. Only one colleague in the chemistry department came to court and spoke on her behalf, confirming she was a talented researcher, but did not agree that there was discrimination. The trial was 11 weeks long, and the judge agreed with Regender that discrimination occurred by 1980. The university did not renew her postdoctoral position or give her a faculty post. No other university agreed to hire her. Meanwhile, Regender left the field of chemistry and attended law school at Hamline University School of Law in St. Paul, Minnesota, receiving a JD, a Juris Doctor, with a rank of first out of 106 students. She then became a lawyer and later a real estate agent. Her LinkedIn biography notes the following, quote, My one big accomplishment in my life has been and continues to be the resounding victory in the first class action lawsuit brought by me single-handedly as a faculty member against a major Midwestern university for unlawful discrimination based on gender and national origin, unquote. As a settlement, she got an award of $100,000, and her lawyers got $2 million. Again, the money had an effect, but there was more. A few of the university-employed liars in court were fired from their jobs. The University of Minnesota was forced to equalize pay for women faculty, hire more female faculty, and promote more women. A week after the consent decree was signed, 250 women filed claims against the university. Progress was slow, unfortunately, and lasted into the 1990s. The Minnesota state system of higher education was put under observation by a special master. And there was more. Suddenly, discrimination against women became a real thing, and the administration began taking women's complaints seriously. The chemistry world also lost a talented researcher when Regender left science for the law. Initially, she took it hard, as she says in her book, Up Against the Ivory Tower, a memoir. Quote, That I could not be a university professor anymore was a bitter pill to swallow, even though I was the one who chose to fight the university for my rights. Unquote. The sexism of the chemistry professor's old boys club is visible and lingering, for example, in a transcript done in 1999 with retired chemistry professor Rufus Lumrey, with whom Regender published some postdoctoral research, interviewed by Associate Dean Anne Flaum at the University of Minnesota. I will quote from the transcript and let you think about the situation. Lumrey said about Regender, quote, She was very smart, but she was very emotional and she got herself into a lot of hot water, but it wasn't really her fault. The trouble was that the judge was really nutty, just kind of a wacky character. He had a terrible reputation away from here. She wanted to stay here and she wanted a teaching job. She was very ambitious, but she was pretty aggressive 
and there were people in this department who were even more aggressive than she was. It was a mess. Everybody said things they shouldn't have said. Rajender's father was, I think, a high judge in India, and she had the Brahmin chip on her shoulder thing. She wasn't going to take any of that, so she got this guy, Springer, downtown to take her case. Unquote. Later in the transcript, Lumrey added, quote, When I go to universities now that never had a female on their staff in chemistry or any place else, and now they've got five or six ladies, I see that all over. Unquote. And even later he commented, quote, she caused a lot of trouble in the lab, too, with that holier-than-thou kind of thing, which she gets. She comes by it legitimately. That's the way the Hindus are. They're top caste. But it was too bad. Unquote. Think not just about the content of what Professor Lumrey said, but also the words he used when he said it, a quarter of a century after the event. I may talk about diversity in chemistry in a future episode. I should add that the University of Minnesota's lack of women chemistry professors in the early 1970s was not an unusual occurrence at that time. Even a decade and a half later, in the late 1980s, I saw the same problem at Rice University as a graduate student. Rice University's chemistry department, a large and influential department on campus for, I think, all of Rice University's presidents were chemistry professors to that time, had no women. Apparently there was a serious problem brewing in the department, because after I finished my Ph.D. there, I received a chemistry department-sponsored survey asking about sexism in the chemistry department. What the results of the survey were, I still don't know, even after asking the university. Maybe a journalism-minded listener to this podcast can help me find out. Only in the mid-1990s was the first female chemistry professor hired at Rice. The problem of discrimination against women in chemistry departments continues. Professor Katrina Miranda filed a class action lawsuit against the University of Arizona in 2018 for being substantially underpaid compared with male professors and then settled with the university for $100,000 in 2019. As of 2018, even though women got 41% of PhDs in chemistry, they only are 20% of all tenure-track faculty in American universities. Both the American Chemical Society and Royal Society of Chemistry have made it their business to actively promote diversity in the chemistry world. A study published in Chemistry Europe in 2020 found that women are still underrepresented in European chemistry departments. In the journal Frontiers in Chemistry in 2021, an editorial appeared on women in chemistry. The article noted that the National Center for Research in France, CNRS, has attained 38% of chemistry researchers being women, much higher than the average in the EU, which is only 14.6%, but even France has a significant way to go for parity. 
And let us note that the problem is not restricted to academia. The Bechtel Oil, Gas, and Chemical Company agreed to resolve gender gaps in pay for 22 women in Houston, Texas, in 2021. In our next episode, we turn back to nomenclature, but this time we look at the case of organic compounds and the evolution of naming them. Until then, brave the elements! Thank you for listening to the History of Chemistry podcast. 